Hi, everybody. This is Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio and the host of the Politically Speaking podcast. I wanted to just tell our listeners up front that you're about to hear a podcast with Lieutenant Governor Peter Kinder. He's a Republican and he's running for governor. He's been told by federal authorities not to talk openly about the campaign finance controversy that's been in the news lately. We've respected that request, but we wanted to just let our listeners know that's why it's not a topic of discussion on this show. Without any further ado, here is our podcast with Lieutenant Governor Kinder. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair to say. say, hands to kiss and babies to shake. (laughs) But uh, no, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Alongside me in studio today is... Colleague Joe Manis. And fresh off a successful moderation of the Republican uh, presidential debate, (laughs) we have a special treat here today. In studio is... Lieutenant Governor Peter Kinder. Okay, that was a really obscure joke. Uh, Peter Kinder, the lieutenant governor, looks a lot like Hugh Hewitt. They've never been seen in the same room together. Correct. And uh, this is a joke that will never get old, I would say. Yeah, this is kind of a Republican circles joke. Very funny. But thank you for joining us again. It's your second time on the show, but first time in studio. We like to have people in studio so we don't interrupt them over the phone. My pleasure. um, Great to be here. a, A lot has changed since we last talked. Uh, you are now a officially a candidate for governor. Um, what what kind of prompted you to make that decision? Because in 2008, 2012, you were thinking about it, decided to run for re-election instead. Mm-hmm. Now you're you're in it to win it. I am. Uh, and as one of four candidates for the Republican nomination, I'm the only one who has ever won a statewide election. I've won three times. I've come from behind in all three campaigns. I have been outspent and quite dramatically outspent on one occasion and still won. And uh, uh, in 2008 and 12, I was the only Republican to make it across to the winner's circle. Yeah, among the uh, statewide candidates. Out of 11 aspirants in those two presidential cycles. So uh, I think I have something to offer. I think I have something to offer every part of the state. Uh, I I have a a proven track record of leadership my years in the Senate as the first member of my party to head uh, the Missouri Senate as President Pro Tem in 53 years, and I uh, think we had a successful four years there. Our majorities were increased each of those years under my leadership. And I think I have great experience in state government, but still maintain sort of an outsider persona and approach to the issues. Now, so so I, I'm, one, I'm an outstate Republican and the only one in this race not from St. Louis, which is interesting, against three candidates who are from here. But I'm known as a St. Louis-friendly candidate who comes here a lot, who spends a lot of time in the urban core, who makes appeals for the minority vote, and who shows up uh, in odd-numbered years as well as election years. Why do you think that you're often underestimated? I mean, just looking at it from a political strategic perspective, because you often perform better in the uh, voting, in the election results, than many people predict that happened like in 2004, for example, and uh, and in 2008 when you got talked out of running for governor in 2008, and you ended up winning. The, the gentleman who ended up being the um, candidate for governor ended up losing by 19 percentage points. Um, so why do you think that you often have been underestimated by members of your own party? And this goes back like 20 years. 
Well, I don't know, but uh, I, I would correct one aspect. In 2008, I was not uh, I was not talked out of the race. I was uh, in February of 2008. I was there. I looked around and I said, "This is going to be one horrible Republican year." And my calculation, uh, based on what I thought was an accurate forecast, was no Republican, given the short term with Matt Blunt pulling out at the end of January, seven months before the primary in August, no Republican was going to beat Jay Nixon that year. I didn't think Sarah Steelman would. I didn't think Kenny Helsoff would. And I didn't think I would. And my calculation at that time in 2008 was one of the three of us better make darn sure he gets himself reelected and lives to fight another day. And that was my calculation. But why am I underestimated? Uh, I don't know, but Tony Messenger tweeted on the day I announced on July 12th, all snark about Peter Kinder aside, he said, he gets more votes for less money in a campaign than any candidate I've seen. Interestingly, Tony Messenger wrote like last week that Lieutenant Governor Peter Kinder has always wanted to be governor, but likely never will be. I don't know if you read that, but that's kind of the example of being underestimated. And I'm sure people in 2012, for example, when you had to go through that really, really rough primary with Brad Lager, thought you were toast then. You beat him. You beat Susan Monty. You're still here. But that kind of just showcases the continued underestimation of your, your political stock. Like, yeah. what do you, what do you, how do you react uh, when people talk like that? Uh, well, I don't know. You know, uh, I'm 6-0 and in uh, general election contests. Uh, I had no primary opposition in my uh, state Senate races, but I came from behind to defeat Betty Hearns in my first race. I was I, there for that, too. I did, a poll, I did a poll in September of 92 that I paid $5,000 for and was told I was behind 55 to 32 with six or seven weeks to go. I had not begun advertising yet, and I won five out of six counties and won 55% to 45. So uh, it's a pattern, and I'll leave it to others to state why they underestimate me, but I don't mind being the perceived as the underdog. So as you mentioned, there are three other candidates in the race. They've all raised a lot of money. I wouldn't say that your fundraising has been bad, per se. Like after you announced, I saw an uptick in, in fundraising, but it hasn't kept up with the other candidates. Well, let's what state you, exactly yeah, where it is. Sure. From a standing start on the 12th of July, that is giving up almost half of one of the three months of the quarter, mm-hmm. ending September 30th, I was second mm-hmm. in a field that at one time had seven candidates yes, in it. Yes, that's true. Three have dropped out, leaving leaving four of us. But I believe at the end of, the, of September, at the third quarter, where I was second, uh, a, it was still a field of six mm-hmm. candidates. Um, or at least five. So, so uh, now none of us are keeping tabs with the leader in fundraising, Mr. Greitens, who took in on one day in two checks from out of state, one from California, one from Michigan, fi- uh, five hundred thousand and two hundred thousand in two checks. He took in seven hundred thousand and outdistanced all of the rest of us in fundraising put together. Mm-hmm. But. Uh, I outdistanced candidates who had been at this for much longer than I had in this race, mm-hmm. uh, meaning my friends John Bruner and Catherine Hannaway. I believe I have my fingers crossed. I may be in a position to finish the same position of second in this quarter that ends uh, New Year's Eve. But it's conventional wisdom that you may not need as much money because your I name recognition is I higher. don't need the 8 to $10 million that some other candidates are talking about. 
but I need a million and a half to two million, and I'm on track to raise and that. And then after, whoever wins the primary, if, for example, the Republican Gubernatorial Association polls and says it's a dead heat, I, I, my personal opinion is it doesn't matter who's the nominee. They'll be well-stocked to face costs. The Republican or, Governors Association, which sits with 31 of the 50 governors, uh, is very interested in the Missouri race. Let me assure you yeah. of that. Yeah, well, they they're already, going to be in here. Yeah, I mean, there already are a couple independent groups, five hundred one c fours. Missouri which, Rising. Yes, which means they don't have to identify their donors in some cases. Other cases, they're just regular PACs, but they're either allied with national Republican interests. They've already started firing off some ads against Coster. Um, you know Coster pretty well because I mean, I sure he used do. to be he used to be a Republican. We are friends. <laughs> So how does that play out? Let's say if it ends up being you and Coster. Um, do you have any thoughts on how you would approach that? I'm very hopeful that it will lead to a campaign more likely to be on the issues. I, I have said at every public forum I can, beginning with my July 12th announcement here in urban St. Louis up in Ferguson, Delwood area, I have said repeatedly that Missourians are tired of the politics of personal destruction, that they are sick of these campaigns that consist of getting a bucket of slime and dumping it on the head of your opponent. I've been through that, and I don't think Missourians want that. I think what Missourians want is for candidates to put facts and fair argument on the table and let them make their their own minds. And this could kind of transition to our first topic, because I talked about this with uh, former House Speaker Tilly and Senator Nasheed. I could envision a scenario where the general election between you and Coster is like a referendum on right to work, and you're pro-right to work, he's anti-right to work, you try to mobilize your base, he tries to mobilize his base. And, you know, it could be contentious, but it wouldn't be personal. It would be an, an election with actual stakes because there's an assumption that whoever wins the Republic, if the Republican wins, right to work becomes law of the land. But I'm a cynical person, and I'm kind of worried that's not going to be the general election. It's going to be personal stuff and, and whatnot. I mean, is that your hope as well? well it is my hope yeah. uh, because I believe there is a mounting, uh, a rising mountain of evidence that right to work, freedom to work is the way to go. Uh, after the election of Matt Bevan as governor of the Commonwealth of Kentucky, uh, in a in a in a few months, maybe in a few weeks, Kentucky will become the 26th state of the union to, be, to go right to work. That will leave Missouri surrounded by seven of our eight neighboring states that have already moved in this majority direction that the country is moving in. And the, and the trend is unmistakable. The trend is clear. It is leaving only Illinois uh, to our east as the, the one state that is not right to work. And Governor Rahner over there is trying to move them to a place where they have regional uh, or county right to work. So, so the trend is clear. Missourians are too often going to other states to find work, and they are right to work states like Tennessee and Texas and Georgia, others. If you talk to construction executives in this town uh, and say, how is, how is business? They'll say, well, business isn't bad, but I, uh, there is a bad news thing about it. I have to go out of state to find it. I've opened an office in Dallas. I've opened uh, a shop in Atlanta or Arizona or somewhere else in Texas uh, because that's where the work is. And that's where talented young Missourians are moving in too many cases. I want to keep them here. Now, critics contend, and you've heard this, that uh, right to work basically means right to work for less, 
and they say it would just drive down the wages in Missouri, and they point to, okay, a couple states, Kansas and Oklahoma, where, which are right to work, but they have troubled economies right now. Uh, I'm just interested in your, in your take well, on that. I'll point you to the rising mountain of evidence. Um, Oklahoma gained union jobs last year while Missouri lost 5,000 union jobs. If they're troubled economy, uh, which they do have, I, right I, now. I would dispute that, that that their economies are troubled. Well, it's we're, we're also of oil surrounded. We're also Oklahoma's surrounded case. by tax cutting states, and I know there's a big argument going on about uh, whether Kansas experiment has been good or not. But the recent numbers on job growth and investment and people. Uh, taking advantage of opportunities there are very positive and revenues are rising too. So uh, I don't think you can take one or two years and extrapolate. But let's go to the more recent states that have moved to right to work and see what's happened. Three states to our north and east, those being in this order, Indiana in in 2011, um, early 2011. So in the new year, it'll be five years since Indiana did it. Uh, followed by December of 2012, Michigan, the birthplace of the trade union movement, went right to work. And this year in February, Wisconsin. Three states all more labor-dominated than Missouri, all more democratic and likely likelier to go democratic in a national election than Missouri is, are now right to work. With the exception ha- of Indiana, but continue. And what's happening? Well, Indiana went for Obama the first time. I understand. Time, the the first time, I understand, yeah. but continue. But, but, but... Uh, what's happening? The answer is Indiana led the nation in manufacturing job growth last year. Who was number two after Indiana number one? Michigan. This is an almost immediate transformation in their rust belt, in their aging rust belt economies. And Indiana gained 50,000 union manufacturing jobs last year while we lost 5,000. If that doesn't lay to rest, the notion that this is anti-union I don't know what will. This is a measure that says it doesn't reject unionism. It says that if unions can sell themselves in a voluntary transaction, that they add value, more power to them. So if right to work was such a good policy, why wasn't it done between 2005 and 2009 when there was a Republican governor? For the very simple reason that the issue had not matured yet enough and the national trend had not become clear enough and because for the very simple reason that the Republican who a- happened to occupy the office of governor We're in those four Matt years, Blunt. Matt Blunt, came out with a very definitive, declarative statement that we're not going to do right to work on his watch. And and you can argue with that, pro or con, but that's the answer. Was that a missed work. opportunity, though? I believe it was. If, if, for example, there was a pro right to work governor between that time, I mean, we wouldn't be talking about this. We'd be talking about the fact that Missouri's a right to work state. Correct. So I wanted wanted to play a clip from somebody who has a different view of this, Mm -hmm. Senator Gina Walsh. She's Mm -hmm. a Democrat from Belfont and Neighbors. She's a a longtime uh, official with labor unions. And she was in the legislature in 2002, 2004, 2006, 2010. Here's what she had to say about the fact that it wasn't done during the time period of Matt Blunt. Well, at that time, the governor himself said that he would not support a right-to-work issue, the Republican governor. Matt Blunt, by the way. Yes. And, uh, you know, I'm a Democrat. I've been a Democrat all my life. I'm also a labor person. And as a labor person, labor people know that uh, issues like right-to-work does not have a political party attached to it. People in the legislature, uh, or at least the rank-and-file members, don't think it— 
It does. A lot of the labor union uh, members in St. Charles County are not Democrats. We'd like to think they are, but they're not. You can just look at the numbers out there and who they're electing. So we, we talked about the first part of that, that comment, but the second part kind of goes into more current day because right to work passed both chambers of the legislature for the first time ever, but it didn't get overridden because a number of Republicans, um, some in Jefferson County and in St. Charles County and other, you know, areas with a lot of union representation voted against overriding it. And now there's like a recrimination campaign against them. Which uh, is funded so far solely by the Humphreys. And, you know, it, 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 it's caused a lot of consternation within the Republican Party. What, what's kind of your take of that entire Well, I situation? think it's natural in a healthy debate that should go on in a political party. I, I want a big majority Republican Party uh, governing my state. And we have that in the legislature. And when you win as many seats as we have won, you will have a diversity of philosophical, ideological viewpoints. Um, uh, I think it's healthy to have that. Uh, I, I have no part in the campaign that you just referred to of recriminations against people who disagreed with me. I do reserve the right to disagree with my friends. Mm -hmm. And on this issue, I do. The, the national trend is clear. People are voting with their feet all over this nation, moving to right-to-work states. Uh, let, me, let me give you a yardstick that most people don't know about. The, the Missouri in the 1920s that my parents were born into had how many congressional seats? We had 16 seats and 18 electoral votes. The Missouri I grew up in, in the from the 1950s and 60s on had 10 congressional seats and 12 electoral votes. We had that until 1981. We lost a seat and went to nine. We had nine seats until 30, for 30 years until the last census. And, and, and in 2011, we lost another seat and went to eight. Guess what? On current trajectory, we are on track to lose another seat and go to seven. That is a depressing uh, trend that I want to reverse. I, I want to make Missouri more important in the national scheme of things with growing jobs and opportunity and not the, the losing track that we're on now. Now, uh, without getting too much into the weeds, but I've covered some of this stuff for the last 20 years having to do with the census things. While there has been some, a little bit of population loss, let's say in the city of St. Louis, but it went to St. Louis County, really the large chunks of loss in Missouri have been like in the rural areas, like the northern part of the state, which has been almost depopulated um, in the last 15 years uh, because of problems with farming. Joe, I, I'm, that's I'm a 100-year trip. Okay. trend. Okay. That's not a 15 No, Well, but my point is, what do you think Missouri can can do to counter that? The fact that you have all this population loss, frankly, a lot of it is in rural Missouri. Yes, it is. And, and But St. Louis is probably second only to Detroit in losing population out of this city. It's a catastrophic population loss out of the city. And with, with crime, which is an issue we ought to discuss before we get off here. Okay. Uh, we are we are at risk of falling maybe one of these days below 300,000 in the city of St. Louis, while St. Charles is way over 300,000 as people who've moved out there. But yes, passing right to work, passing more flexible labor laws would make Missouri more attractive to jobs and investment, urban and rural. So that is the answer to your question on how we turn around uh, disturbing trends 
in Missouri demographically and population wise. How quickly do you think it will be before right to work becomes law of the land if you're governor? It could happen uh, certainly as fast as tort reform landed on Matt Blunt's desk and was signed in March during the spring break of 2005. I, I That's what the historical record shows. Yeah. Now, you mentioned crime. And, it, and, and this does sort of dovetail into the reputation you've had for working with urban yes. uh, Democrats. I mean, at your kickoff, which I covered yes. on that hot parking lot in July, there was a number, number of African-American Democrats who were there, although yes. they were saying they may not endorse you. They were there because they do like you. Uh, so I'm just interested in how you would tackle some of the— yes urban issues, such particularly yes. crime. Well, Joe, on that day, on July 12th, which I believe was the hottest day of the year to that point, when we stood on that asphalt parking lot in Delwood right next to Ferguson, I was surrounded by a number of the store owners who were burned out, who, who, who were looted out of business in what I believe is the greatest failure of executive leadership of state government in my lifetime, maybe in the history of the state. And that's Jay Nixon's failure in the, what the six-month-long catastrophe we call Ferguson. And you will recall that many of those store owners were themselves minorities standing with me. And some of them were, a number of them were endorsing me. I think you may be referring to my friend, the uh, mayor of Delwood, Reggie, jo uh, Reggie Jones, who was not necessarily endorsing me. But Tony Thompson was endorsing me. He, yes. And, and, and he's, a, he's an Obama kinder Democrat, okay? Those people have been, minorities in the urban core have been hurt the worst by state government's failure and local government's failure to preserve law and order. You cannot have anything like a thriving local economy, uh, good small businesses with, with nice, neat storefronts, if, if you don't preserve law and order. They're hurt, the, they were hurt first and they were hurt worst. And so they rallied to my banner when I said, no more Ferguson's, never again. Now, what do you think should have been done? with? Uh, because your big beef with it, that you're emphasizing during the kickoff was the arsons and some of the other stuff yes. that happened right after yes. uh, the announcement yes. in no, last November um, uh, that there would be no in indictment. Uh, just interested in your take on what could have, what should have been First done. First of all, I think I would have rolled out the announcement of the, uh, by uh, the prosecutor, who, who I have high regard for, I would have rolled that out at about 6 a.m. instead of 8 p.m. Uh, secondly, what would I have done as governor? I would have been communicating with the mayors. I would have been on the phone to Mayor James Knowles and Mayor Reggie Jones instead of ignoring their calls as Governor Nixon did. It's indefensible, and he has never explained his failure to do that while he was on the phone with Valerie Jarrett in the Obama White House, both on the night of the rioting and the next morning, the next Tuesday morning before Thanksgiving. Now, you ask what I would have done? I would have used our fine guardsmen and women for the purposes for which they were trained and for which they were ready to, to mobilize in the streets to protect lives, safety, and property of our people. We had guardsmen at Bush Stadium. We had them at the Galleria. We had guardsmen at Lambert Airport, and we had guardsmen at the seat of county government in Clayton. There was no significant trouble in any of those locations. The guardsmen were pulled off the street at Chambers Road and West Florissant, and it was an atrocity. It was a betrayal of state government. Now, if you say, as Governor Nixon has, in the closest he has come to an explanation, well, we didn't want them in there to provoke them. Well, then why were they sent in the next night? They were sent in Tuesday night, 
And there was no rioting to speak of like what had happened. And, and what before. James Knowles told me when I asked him to kind of respond to the governor's argumentation, it's like, well, he said, why were they in Clayton? Because a, a similar situation could have happened there as and well. Almost did. So now this does bring up uh, kind of a side issue that's been a factor for almost well, seven years now is that you and the governor don't speak. Correct. At his choosing. Yes, I know, but I just wanted to ask you about You know the history on that, where I offered him my help, and he's he's refused it. That's fine. I mean, so I do don't you guys have a talk at all? Do you even know when he goes out of here, state? Here, no, I do not. When he goes to Afghanistan to visit our troops, I learn about it through the media. On the morning of, on the night of the trouble, November 24th, I believe Monday before Thanksgiving last year, uh, I happened to be at a meeting of lieutenant governors for two nights in Washington, D.C. I watched in horror before I went to bed as the rioting erupted. I got up at 5.30 the next morning and I had a anguished voice message from J- Mayor James Knowles saying, I'm watching my city burn and nobody in the governor's office will return a call. Will you call me? So I immediately upon arising, I had media buzzing me for interviews and one of them was from Fox News which wanted to interview me there in Washington, D.C. So I agreed to go in uh, nine o'clock, uh, Eastern Time, 8 o'clock, so 8 o'clock Central. So I sent my staff guy, Reed Forrester, down the hall, same floor, second floor, to the governor's office. I said, tell them in about 25 minutes I'm going on national cable TV, and is there a brief that I should have about what went on last night, what's going on today, and what are the message is? And we were stiffed. Uh, the, the, the governor's press aide handed my staffer uh, the statement that was handed out at 10 p.m. the night before. There was no brief, uh, which was a terse, essentially nothing statement, and that's the, that's the way the governor treats the people of Missouri. By the way, if you debrief the other five constitutional officers of state government, the state treasurer, the auditor, the attorney general, and so forth, they'll tell you the same thing. They don't get communication from no, this I governor. Ask, He's a loner. I want to ask a more global question because you were yes. one of the first, I think, prominent officials to tweet out after Michael Brown was shot, I believe. Um, I think that you went to his funeral. I think that you were in Ferguson. I was the, the day- only one of the six statewide yeah. elected officials at right. his funeral. Right. Yes. So you obviously— Governor Nixon was asked to stay away. Yeah. So you obviously took that— situation seriously on the day that it happened. I did. And then, you know, you made some provocative comments about the Department of Justice and how they looked into the Michael Brown shooting. You've gone on to many conservative talk shows that seem to believe that the entire Michael Brown episode was overblown. I mean, from how would you respond to the argumentation that there's not really a clear message from you about how you responded to Michael Brown? Well, no. The clear message is Missourians are demanding a return to law and order. Mm -hmm. And that is true of black, white, brown, and any other color Missourian. We cannot have a a peaceful and prosperous Missouri if we have what went on in Ferguson. Now, you said some people who are friends of mine or, or radio hosts who've had me on their shows think Ferguson was overblown. It was overblown when it was based on a lie. It was based on a lie that has been exposed as a lie by the Obama Justice Department. Mr. Holder took until March, but he did come out in the March of this year, in 2015, with a, uh, 
a fairly conclusive and exhaustive report saying that there never was any hands up, don't mm-hmm. shoot. Yet we had members of the St. Louis Rams football team coming in, hands up, don't shoot. We had members of U.S. Congress on the floor of the House of Representatives doing hands up, don't shoot. Mm-hmm. This was a, a pernicious uh, myth that, that on which the whole thing was based. We had George Soros paying protesters. We had professional troublemakers coming in here by the boatload from both coasts. This was a slander on the good name of the good people of Ferguson and the good name of of the greater St. Louis region that we will be years digging out of this hole. Because, I mean, you've been out, you were outspoken about this at your kickoff as well. Because of your stance on that whole part of it, plus, as Jason noted, you know, you were here right after the the, um, unrest began, you were at the funeral. Has some of the um, African Americans who had been maybe sympathetic or in you at the early stages. What's been the reaction when you've sort of been pretty hard-nosed as far as um, as far as the law and order, whether or not, Michael, the, the hands-up-don't-shoot thing that you talked well, about? Uh, look, has, look, has, has there been fallout? I, I, I will just simply tell you that more have rallied to my banner. I was flanked at that announcement by not only the mayor of Ferguson, not only by Tony Thompson, but by Janice Andrews and her husband, the Reverend Eddie Andrews. They were burned out. They're, Af- they're a fine African-American family. I held them up as exemplars of the best things that we can look for in our citizens. Uh, uh, they saw a 90% drop in their income and only in the last month have gotten their store open again. It's a it's it's a devastating thing, and they want a restoration of law and order. When when uh, Dr. Ben Carson came to Ferguson a few months back, uh, we had a roundtable, and and uh, Mrs. Andrews, Mrs. Andrews, Janice Andrews, the store owner, um, sat there at the uh, table with Dr. Carson, with me, and with several protesters, and she let him have it. She's a a God-fearing, law-abiding citizen in this community who said, man, you destroyed my livelihood and, and the way I feed my family for a year. And I got about only 10% or so from the insurance settlement. So they've struggled to get back on their feet. I'm on the side of the good people. And where protesters have a right to have their First Amendment heard, yes, they do, but they don't have the right to shut down people's businesses and make it impossible for people to earn a living. Yeah. If Ferguson was based on a lie, then do you regret going to Michael Brown's funeral or sending I out the not. initial tweet? I do not. I think it was important to indicate respect for all sides and for all citizens. Mm-hmm. And at the time, uh, n- nobody knew the facts. That's why I opposed mm-hmm. the rioters' rush to judgment and demanding in, 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 in the fashion not too far from a lynch mob, uh, mob justice for Darren Wilson. And, and I think the Obama Justice Department entered into that. Uh, when, when Mr. Holder came to town and visited the family of Michael Brown but did not visit the family or the person of Darren Wilson, I noted that in my Pledge of Allegiance it says we pledge liberty and justice for all. We don't put the thumb on one side of the scales of justice and say we're on this side, but that's what the Obama White House and Justice Department did, and that's why I objected. Now, as head of the Senate, 
in any fact, I mean, you, you would cast if there's any t tight votes. Um, you know, there were the court changes last session. But do you foresee any other major um, legislation tied to uh, the Ferguson unrest during 2016? And especially after the release of the Ferguson Commission report. There could be. Uh, I think we should all be studying, as I have been, the Ferguson Commission report. Uh, I am frankly disappointed in the Ferguson Commission report on a number of accounts. I think they ignored the issue of school choice and charter schools, which we should be expanding. Michael Brown graduated from an unaccredited school. It is not clear uh, what kind of future he was headed for. Uh, we all hope for the best for him as we do for every young person graduating in Missouri or not graduating, but he, he did not appear to be on a track headed you know, to success when he was knocking over a convenience store a few minutes before the fatal encounter. Um, uh, I, I, your question about legislation, uh, that's on the table for re review. It could include everything from uh, body cameras and dash cams in, in, the, in the police vehicles to anything else the commission recommended. But I was disappointed they didn't address well, education I mean, there more. have been other states that have adopted those types of things, like Texas passed a pretty comprehensive body camera law. And Texas is a pretty conservative state with a conservative governor, a conservative legislature. So if you were governor, would that be something that you would consider? Or any I would of the have other no things? opposition to it. The question would be funding. And I, I, right. I'd, be, I'd, I'd be for doing it. And I'd study how Texas and other states had done it. I'm a civil libertarian. I don't want the police beating up on anybody in an unjust manner. I take my civil liberty uh, lesson very seriously. Now, tied to this a little bit, uh, I was thinking about this actually for a while since we knew you were going to come on. As it stands now, because of term limits and everything else, you are probably one of the most um, long-term people who have served in Jeff City. I mean, from if you go back from the state senate, I mean, not your office and all this. So a lot of people are only there maybe eight years. You've been there in various positions now, um, close to 25. Um, I, looking at Jeff City, the climate in Jeff City, the fact that even though Republicans control the General Assembly, Democrats control all but one statewide office, yours, uh -huh. I'm, I'm just interested in your general assessment. And if you're elected governor, governor would you change, try to change things or not? Yes, and I will be supporting Speaker Todd Richardson in his push to pass an ethics reform measure early in the new year that I believe is going to be, if not his highest priority, among the highest priorities. I believe that will be one that lands on the governor's desk and it will be major progress this year in advance of the election. So I wanted in our, our closing minutes to talk about the stadium. You have been an outspoken opponent of how Governor Nixon has approached the state funding aspect. For our listeners who haven't been paying attention, as it stands, <laughs> he's been I, under a rock. <laughs> it, it's it's an all-encompassing story. Uh, right now, it appears that the governor is going to issue bonds, the state bonds for this project, without a legislative or statewide vote, and it has raised all sorts of a bipartisan alarm in the legislature. And I know that it's raised alarm with you as well. Tell us a little bit about why well, it's raised alarm. Here's my here's my view. Um, the Jones Dome legislation was passed right before I got to Jefferson City. Uh, I came after the 92 election in, in winter of 93. So it had been done in about 1990. Yes. And 
So that's 25 years ago. When Here, Ashcroft was governor. He was when John Ashcroft signed it into law. Here was the procedure. It was a bill introduced in the legislature. It was both houses. It was the subject of hearings at which witnesses could appear for and against. It had to be voted out of committee in both chambers with a majority vote. It then went to the floor of the House. It went to the floor of the Senate, where it was debated again, pro and con, and a lot of news stories on it for people to consider. It then had to be the subject of majority votes in both chambers on the floors of the House and Senate. And then it landed on Governor John Ashcroft's desk where he, I think, reluctantly signed it into law. That is the proper procedure. Mm -hmm. If you're going to bind the voters and the taxpayers of Missouri for decades to bonded indebtedness, which is the, the retirement of which is the first obligation of state government, it should be properly done through the legislature. So you should not be doing it by one man who says, I'm the governor and I can do this for another 30 years on another project. So I want to ask you flat out, if you are elected governor and you have to decide whether to issue bonds by fiat or without a state legislative or statewide vote, would you not do it basically? I would insist that there had that it had gone through the legislature in the pat in the in the fashion I just described. So I want to play a clip now from Attorney General Chris Coster. I asked that exact same question to him. I think this is a really important question, to be honest, because I do not think that this entire stadium situation is going to be resolved before the end of 2016. So I think the next governor will have to make this decision. Here is what Coster had to say. I don't even know that the, the issue is revenue positive yet. If the issue is not resident, re, uh, revenue positive, uh, then it shouldn't even be considered. So I'm going to let Dave Peacock and Bob Blitz and the Republican leadership work through this process before I prejudge it. Um, but my belief is it has to be re revenue positive. It should be considered like any other economic development project. If it's not revenue positive to the state, it should be uh, swept from the table. Um, but I, as I said in my statement to you, I think that it is better that the legislature record their vote, as they've had a chance to do now for nearly a year. What he, what he was referring to is he sent me a statement basically that the legislature should be able to quote unquote record their views. I asked him, what does that mean? And he basically said that'll be up to the legislature to decide. But with that context in mind, what do you make of the attorney general's statement? Well, I there? think his answer is a dodge. I think he dodged your question. Hmm. I tried to answer you candidly and forthrightly that I don't want to go down this road with one governor saying he can do this. Uh, any governor. I would oppose it if it were a Republican attempting to do this without a vote of the people or their elected representatives going on the record. Say what you will about the Jones Dome. Good, bad, indifferent. You can oppose it or like it. But it was done according to the proper legislative and legal procedure and uh, and then people were accountable for their votes. I know of one guy in the western part of the state who lost his election the next time uh, because he voted for that stadium. Now, voting Only on, one, though. Voting on stadiums or state help or whatever has been kind of touchy territory for a number of Republicans over the years, including Hannaway, who some believe lost her 2004 bid for Secretary of State over, over the issue having to do with Bush Stadium. But... Looking at this perspective-wise, do you think in the case of this Rams fight that it could just be for naught, that the Rams may end up moving, the NFL may or may not try to steer another team here? This, I, I think it's entirely—I've never seen a, a situation comparable to this in the sense of how much it's up in the air. We have a, an owner who unambiguously has announced to the world his intention to move. 
to to take his team and build a $1.7 billion stadium in Southern California. I, I am told that if you go out there, and I haven't been there in years, uh, that you will see all kinds of signs around the landscape. Welcome Rams. I believe they've started construction on it, and which is a little presumptuous because I'm not really? sure he has the yeah. votes to move. It, but we continue. don't know if he has the votes among the, his his cohorts, his colleagues among the NFL owners, where he I believe needs a two thirds vote. He does, and and so that's actually a, question a three, actually a three fourths vote. But three fourths vote, and. Then you have two other teams, both now in California, San Diego Chargers and the Oakland Raiders, who also want to move to the L.A. market. This is very much in flux, and I don't know who to believe on who's going to be allowed to move there and who isn't. And then, and then the proponents of the stadium say, well, we won't build it if they're in an NFL team coming to St. Louis. So I guess they have in mind our friend up the road in Champaign, Illinois, who owns the, what, the Jacksonville team, and he might move here. I I'm a little skeptical of that because the Jaguars are finally watchable and they've actually put a lot of money into there, but you never know. I guess the the only other question that I have is, because when I was talking with you about this on the phone, you took a very nuanced view of what would happen if Nixon did extend the bonds by fiat and the legislature decided, you know, not to not to fund the, the bond payments. Some lawmakers have openly talked about doing that, but from talking with you, you're a little concerned about that route because there are state constitutional provisions about paying debt, essentially. Is that fair to say? Because of a number of defaults, apparently, in the 19th century uh, by state government, Constitution writers ever since then have written into the Constitution that the first obligation of state revenues is the retirement of state debt. And... That comes before the provision that's number two, this, the provision of a free public education to any student in, in the state. So That's uh, an interesting angle. Go ahead. So this underscores the dangerous road this governor is taking us down in his sort of game of chicken here. He should not be doing this. Now, you haven't mentioned another aspect of this and another one of the moving parts or musical chairs, and that's the legal challenge right. filed by Representative Jay Barnes and some other plaintiffs which is about to become ripe. He was kicked out because Nixon had na- not taken any overt act yet. Well, Nixon has now and has taken overt acts and says he is on the verge of taking more overt acts. And so the, the question of standing, the legal question of standing for Jay Barnes's lawsuit is about to be solved, and that's going to be back in court. And that by itself could stop this train. There's a lot of things that could stop this Rams train, but that's for another show, and that's for another yeah. day. But uh, thank you so much for coming. This was, this was excellent. Great fun. Yeah, in fact, we still have tons of questions we'd love to but ask. We, <laughs> we, we need to go on with our lives. Look forward to coming back. <laughs> so all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at... Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And follow Peter Kinder on Twitter at... At Peter Kinder, K-I-N-D-E-R. We'll be, we'll be back next week. Until then, so long.